Well, this might be the first ever film podcast episode which talk about a 50-second film for two hours or so. I've got 99 problems, and this podcast is one of them. Welcome to the Flick Lab. I'm Karri. I studied media. Henrik studies also media. Hi, welcome to the show, dear listener. All right, all right. So how are you, Henrik? Uh, never better, I guess. I, I, I officially hate myself, and my body hates myself, and everything hates me at the moment. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that that's kind of a taken. Yeah, I understand that you're... Midsummer was kind of fruitful in some aspects, so well done. It it, it wasn't in in some aspects. No, I didn't get any sex. If that's what you are trying to imply, um. Well, funnily enough, I'm t- trying to imply the anti-fruitful stuff that you might pour into your stomach every now and then. That's called alcohol. <laughs> yeah, well, that that I did have like a like a. Like. Oh, it, right. it's, it's weird, but the booze that you can actually get from the store is much easier to come by than that. Come by. Than sex that you can't legally mm. purchase. This is our 99th episode. Yeah, we are almost hitting the hundredth here. Which means that we have, with at, at this late now already, we have done this thing for over two years. Yes, where did all the time go? What the hell have, have we created here? Some kind of a monster. Yeah. I, I I don't know what we have created. I'm I'm counting on that our listeners will tell us what we have created once they first find our little podcast. Yeah, please please do tell us because I've no idea. I've lost my last last sensibilities, my my mental health after the episode of Anshandalu. <laughs> Well, I I do still maintain, and and this is us backing ourselves in the back. But I I would say that may have been the most honest review that anyone has ever made about the film. <laughs> All right, so this is the kind of film podcast where we will, or more specifically, Henrik will delve deep into the pressure levels of garden hoses and fire hoses, and estimates whether the bar pressure. Or whatnot, if pointed at you, dear listener, would slash your internal organs. Yeah, did you know that garden hose and a fire hose they are actually two completely different hoses, even though both are hoses? There's a whole, whole wide, miraculous world of, of hoses out there. Oh, yeah. And in that same goddamn episode of Anshandalu, we were talking about the pressure levels of the fire hoses. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that's enough of that. We can be found on the socialistic platforms of Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. And please do not leave us a rating. It's it's bad, bad. Just don't do it. Why are we watching this film now, Henrik? I don't really know. 
It's like, the... like, like the last last episode was my pick, and I, I I'm guessing you got really 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 goddamn desperate. We had to get this back on track because the last episode was zombie strippers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and tonight we are we are watching what a, a film that lasts for 30, uh, 34 seconds. I'd say it's a forty five fifty something like that. Not a long time to look at your watch. Have you per- perhaps see- seen the director's cut cut of the film? Because it appears that your your version is one second longer than mine. Yeah, well, you know th- those were the manual crank times, so it's a little bit here and there. You know, it's not so accurate or important. Speaking of hand cranks, we are talking about this film today because it's uh, appropriate bookends, I guess, for this hundred episode run. And um, uh, how, how in the hell? Because we we started the podcast with really mainstream cinema, even though with with classics, we, we were dealing with with Hitchcock, and now now we are actually talking about I would say really niche territory of of cinema. Well, goddamn early days. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Okay. So so yeah, this once, is... once you figure it out yourself. <laughs> it's because this film started the fictional cinema or kind of cinema itself this is the first known at least known fictional film so it kind of has the traditional structure of the beginning middle and an end and the films before this were also kind of of the same length and lumieres had not touched on fictional filmmaking before that as far as i know there were so many films that they made during their short run that it's kind of hard to figure it out but according to the people in the know say that this is indeed the first fictional film and first comedy film at that and you know i i guess that's appropriate for the last before the hundredth for some reason but Anyway, we are back to the artistic side of things. Well, yep, yep, good. Uh, artistic, it kind of cuts down how much artistry you really count into in today's film and Lumiere productions altogether. Yeah, there is a lot of mischievous action going on back in those days. For example, the Lumieres were not the first guys to create the cinematograph type of machine to make movies. Uh, there were a couple of others before, and the Lumiers actually bought this one patent that belonged to another guy who already had made the cinematograph type of machine, which they then seemed to fine-tune. We'll get to all of this. But... Yeah, because, that's because, because the history of cinema is really the only thing that we can truly get to. Today, really, uh, I have notes for every single frame of this film. So I, I, I I'm also definite that you have also have have the quickies for for this film. Absolutely, I'm I'm really really waiting for your favorite kill. <laughs> yeah, this 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 is the shortest film we have ever done. It it, it is it is, and that's actually saying a lot because we have done some pretty short films already on this podcast and and still somehow managed to squeeze out way too long running episodes out of them i was kind of disappointed even that you chose the moon film for us to pick as the first 
short film because that's not almost even a short film. What I was looking for was to make episodes like this where, you know, the film is 50 seconds or whatever. Because that's that's logical. Cinema history. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about it today. What's your history with this film, Henrik? I've seen it, I don't know, something like maybe 50 times already. Oh. A reason for that quite often is because, well, Finnish broadcasting station Yle and most of the cinema document documentaries that want, want to trail back into the old days usually use this or, or then the train arriving at the station film from Lumiere's when they are talking about the really early days. So you kind of haven't been able to escape being exposed to the movie. Uh, on purpose, I, I've watched the film only two times before. This is my third time when I'm actually honestly chosen to sit down somewhere to, to watch out. Sprinkle, sprinkled. In my case, I always heard these great articles and kind of talk and discussions, even on TV, about the, the great Lumiere train. But I never saw the goddamn Lumiere train. But then came the internet and... I was happy to find it there, among other things. Let's not talk about that. But uh, yeah, that's my history with this film. I watched it online like several years ago, and I seem to be uh, as big fan as you. So I've seen it something like 50 times at this point. Yeah, they can be a big fan, maybe in quotation marks. Like I like mentioned, my, my, most of my times are because everybody uses this as material in their documentary work. Also, my two previous times also stemmed from, you know, screenings for film buffs and and an academic lecture. Uh, okay. Wait, what? You have had an academic lecture about this? In film general. I mean, still, you know, when, when you study art in, in Finland, especially audiovisual media, you kind of are forced to, you know, dwell deep into all sort of birthing place of, of cinema. I mean, well, for fuck's sake, I, I already wrote one paper about the history of, of Finnish movie presentation and, and, the, and the cinema business and, uh, and its birth in Finland. Oh, well done, well done. This evokes great memories from childhood with all those things at the summer house, playing with the hose and, uh, and somebody actually playing tricks on you with that. So it's not really, it's something quite easily to, you know, something that comes out of your mind pretty easily. And it's not a surprise that we are watching this kind of material as the first fictional film. Very simple. It's also not not surprising that we are watching the film you know, on, on the Flick Lab, because we are also some, somewhat lacking in imagination. Oh. <laughs> also in structure, as, as our listeners most definitely have noticed. Ah, uh, well, you know, have to take a holiday every now and then from that structure, actually. Which is a clever segue into the fact that after our 100th, we are going to take a holiday. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And I've been thinking that we don't have to, you know, keep the structure anyway as such of a, you know, cohesive unit. We can actually start to make up the... the, the the structure of the episode from the individual movies, which is a better way than having a certain structure and then trying to kind of force 
that film every time into that same structure, if you know what I mean. Uh, makes makes perfect sense because we are already making up the content of these episodes. Yeah, it's been running for a while and it's great that we're having these kind of revelations about this at this point. But yeah, we're going to take the break after the 100th episodes. It's going to be three weeks, as I understand, Henrik. So yeah, we will return to your earpods to have fun with you after that. Yeah, at, at some fur- uh, further date. Yeah. Well, how did this film came to be? Well, first of all, yeah, go ahead. That's actually a long, 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 long question. Because (laughs) to to really address how how Sprinkle Sprinkled came to be, you kind of would have to go all the way back into the very early foundations of of cinema altogether or or picture illusions. Yeah, so... For starters, this was shot in Lyon in France in the spring of 1895. So, uh, yes, as people like to state, everybody involved in making of this film are dead, yes. And it was first screened on June 10th, 1895. It was made to demonstrate the Lumiere brothers' all-in-one device called the Cinematographe. And... The Lumiere brothers were also the first ones to make remakes of their own goddamn thing. Because in 1896, they made another Sprinkle Sprinkled. I forgot if it's exactly with that same English name, but nevertheless, once again, garden hose. A guy gets sprinkled on the face and the boy doesn't get spanking in that version. But uh, And the, the boy was replaced with a teenager. Yeah, it was... Uh, Spanking action was substituted with a kick in the rump. This film was also part of the first commercial film screening by the Lumiere brothers. But wasn't wasn't the remake actually done by Méliès? Also, and that was done in... uh, 1896, if I remember correctly. Yeah, anyway, this film was part of the first commercial film screening by the Lumiere brothers at the Salon Indien du Grand Café in France and Paris. It was not the first commercial or non-commercial film screening in history, however. Uh, There were at least two held by competitors earlier in a commercial fashion. In the spring of the same year, Sprinkle Sprinkled was the second short film out of a total of 10 films to be shown on that fateful night, or whatever the time of day was, on December 28, 1895. This building does not exist anymore, but there is a new Lumiere Café around the same location now. The films of that night, in shown order, were the exit from the Lumiere factory in Lyon. These are basically all roughly 40 to 50 seconds in length. And the second one was The Gardener, or as it's also known, The Sprinkle Sprinkled, and some various other names, in fact. Third was the disembarkment of the Congress of Photographers in Lyon. I'm just going to say the English names because I don't speak French, unfortunately. Fourth was Horse Trick Riders. Fifth, Fishing for Goldfish. Sixth, Blacksmiths. Seventh, Baby's Breakfast. So here we have, you know, these three little kids around the table. And this one boy is feeding these two kids. Eighth is jumping onto the blanket. Ninth, Cordelier Square in Lyon, and 10th was The Sea, 
and in brackets it says bathing in the sea. Yes, yeah, so in English this is known as the tables turned on the gardener, the water were watered, and the sprinkles sprinkled, and I believe as also as the gardener. So there's a bit of a confusion out there. Took a while to find this again on IMDb because I th think they changed the English main title once again. What about the firsts of this film? So we touched on the topic a little bit. It is the earliest known instance of film comedy, or slapstick, paving the way for the likes of Charlie Chaplin and so on. The first use of film to portray a fictional story. And the first use of a promotional film poster. On the technical side, uh, this was filmed, of course, with the cinematograph, the creation of the Lumiere brothers. The cinematograph is coming from Greek, which means writing the movement, which was an all-in-one camera, serving also as a film projector and developer. Very handy. Many credit the whole birth of a film to, to Lumiere's and the, the whole the projection world of, of movies to Lumiere's. Lumiere's often are mentioned and talked about that these godlike figures who came from somewhere with a vision we are going to create this thing called cinema. And then, you know, out of nothing, they just made it. They created the whole movie experience. And that's really not the case. Like, where, where, where Lumiere's really were the inventors, it was in the stop-and-go mechanism of, of the film camera, which you used to shoot, the, and, and they, they did manage to solve the electricity problem that had plagued the previous models, this one being operated with a hand crank. And like you mentioned, that the fact that Lumiere's machine was also able to develop film and project them the film, meaning that now you could actually have an event where you would show the film to the, to the mass, masses, and you could kind of make a movie a communal experience, because with Lumiere's invention you could project the film, for example, to a wall or to a canvas. But that's re really where Lumiere's kind of where the invention really lies. And even with that, Lumiere's were the only ones on the market or trying to break through with these inventions. Lumiere's may have been the first ones, but even even without Lumiere's, the, the whole projection technology and the, the shooting the me mechanism, the stop-and-go mechanism of film cameras, that would have still been invented if nobody, nobody else than with Oscar Mester. Yeah, and of course uh, our friend uh, Thomas Edison, who wanted to be known for many inventions as his firsts, he was also a very keen guy in the cinematography market and tried to develop and gain fame with his kinetoscope device, which he did. But this was uh, something that... Not invent. Y yeah. <laughs> most, most likely, uh, when it comes to Edison's kinetoscope, most likely the inventor behind that one was William Kennedy Dixon. 
Uh, yeah. Like they, they, it, it was a collaboration with, between Dixon and Edison, knowing Edison's background, how he likes to take credit from other people's works. I'm pretty damn certain that, that Dixon is the one who made the inventing and Edison simply branded it under his name. This is somewhat supported also by the fact that it is strongly rumored, even though I think never really properly established as a fact. But the rumor goes that Dixon wanted to eventually break out from, from Edison's company and go on his own route, and Edison blocked Dixon's escape at that time, and Dixon was kind of hard locked to stay in business with Edison, which kind of would also lend some weight into the whole notion that Edison was not the inventor of his of Quango's his inventions. Yeah, there was also somebody, an inventor called Louis Le Prince, that could be argued to be the real first person, at least known as such, to create some kind of a machine that is going to take uh, pictures in the speed to to call it a cinematography graph type of device because he filed for a patent to a 16 lens camera and projector back in 1886 and uh, this was patented in Washington and Paris yeah uh, Le Prince at least allegedly and or, or Le, Le Prince did make at least three films that uh, Roundhay Garden the Leeds Bridge and the third one, which I can't remember what the title was, but it was he he did shoot his own son in in the third one. The reason why Louis Le Prince is so unknown and why he didn't get get the invention of cinema under his name is because a Le Prince was rather secretive about uh, of his invention and didn't push it to the market. This is something where uh, Lumiere's took note and went completely with the opposite route. The, the second problem is that Le Prince mysteriously disappeared in 1890. And even today, it's unknown what really happened to Le Prince. There, there, some conspiracy theories started to rise up after his disappearance. Some blamed it on Edison, who would have wanted Le Prince killed mm-hmm. in order to make the claim that, that he is the father of, of cinema. Something that Le Prince simply got t- tired of, of family life uh, and the life he had led on uh, up until that point, and simply, you know, moved away to live under an area somewhere else. There are there are no number of stories and theories about what happened to Le Prince, but none of them have ever actually proven. In fact, many of them have been debunked. To like, for example, the the, the mm-hmm. version that Edison would have had Le Prince murdered. In I'm I'm under the impression that that has been deep, even debunked. Yeah, there was, of course, some uh, photograph that the police found, was it from 1890, that could have suggested that in the picture there was a body of a drowned uh, Le Prince, but I think it was inconclusive. Although it's very cur- curious that it seems that he got into a train, 
and was supposed to go to the United States to 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 show his new invention. And so in that sense, everything was looking up, which is kind of throwing the financial difficulties and the possibility of a suicide aside. And I think that whole the theory that his monetary situation would have been so bad that he would have committed suicide, I think that has been debunked completely. So it raises questions. What happened to Le Prince on that fateful train? It does. And the fact is that Le Prince disappeared all of a sudden. It did play in, into Edison's hand. Yeah, who's Edison who started to play around with the cinematograph applied patterns quite sh- shortly after that, if I remember correctly. All right. Would it be scene by scene? It, it would be a scene, I, I guess. <laughs> There are really no transitions in, in Sprinkle Sprinkle. Yeah, so we we start with a gardener who is sprinkling most likely the flowers of the garden. And this actor was an actual gardener. Uh, there are conflicting statements or theories regarding where or how this film came to be. There's one case where one of the Lumiere's says that this was based on the actual experiences of this gardener and they simply kind of reanimated that scene right here. And the second theory says that this would have come from a, a popular cartoon from the times. And if you see the comparisons, it definitely would make sense. Nevertheless, here we are. And do you want to talk about the actors of the film? We have the gardener, Francois Clerc, and this was the Louis Lumiere's own gardener, who is portraying the gardener. Anything else on him? No. (laughs) Okay, and then into the screen arrives the mischievous boy. There seems to be some confusion about the real name of the boy. There are at least three versions that I've seen, but Daniel Duval is one of those names that has been floating, so... What do you have? Daniel Duval? Also known as Leon Trotabas and Benoit Duval. Yeah, so for this, uh, Lumiere used a young apprentice carpenter. As far as I have found out, that, that they made the decision not to use the actual mischievous boy that would have been doing the little harm for the gardener if this event actually took place before. And they deemed that that kid as too young. So they went this with this kid, who was a little bit older, who seemed to fit the role better, apparently. So Apprentice Carpenter from the Lumiere factory, born in 1881. Okay, what happens next? The kid puts his leg on the sprinkler or the hose. He, he, he steps on the hose and holds it long, long enough that the gardener becomes suspicious and looks what is wrong with the hose, and then the kid releases his foot, and the father st- uh, and the water stream shoots out of the hose, hitting the gardener in the face. Yeah, essentially, the kid tries to run, run away. The gardener, gardener catches up to him and gives him a spanking, and that's it. <laughs> no, there's a lot of things going on here. If you haven't seen this film, dear listener, it is kind of a full shot where we see these these two people in the garden the i like the way that the the, the leg is kept on the garden hose for a kind of an extended period of time to kind of 
play with the with the tension, then it, then the finally the the water burst comes out of there. And if you look at the other versions, I don't think it's played as well as it's played here. Yeah, there's the spanking and the break of the fourth wall. As we can see, the kid looking straight into the camera as he leaves the frame. Yeah, which most likely is not the really breaking the fourth wall and simply that the kid who is not not really an actor just kind of fucking it up and ma making one of those unbreakable rules that you should never accident accidentally look at the camera. Yeah, well, anyway, a lot of firsts here. That's it. But when I was going through the different Lumiere films, it is quite pleasant how things are framed. And it's just, you know, they had a complete mastery of their creation, let's say. And surprisingly, meticulously, they have chosen the positions that they have put the camera in. Making for quite some enjoyable viewing. It's not that I've, I would have seen all of the Lumiere films. Far from it, I, maybe like 50 of them. Fortunately, easily accessible nowadays. What's your favorite Lumiere film, Henrik? I really don't have one. All Lumiere films, they more or less are basically the same these days. They drive mostly the same basic function, which is kind of the, the historical merit that they hold. There you go. Yeah, well, about the Lumiere's, they did in fact send camera operators all over the world to film short films and gained interest around the world. For example, they were shooting the pyramids in Egypt and all over the world. And some very few other fictional films were made. Uh, there's one where two guys dress up as women and they slap each other and throw cranes at each other by what looks to be a barn. There's also one supposedly as a tribute to Melies, I'm not sure. But there's a guy who gets driven over by a horse carriage, by the power of cutting. And then there is this one Romeo and Juliet thing. There's this girl at the balcony, and then the guy is using the ladder to get to the balcony to this beautiful lady. Meanwhile, downstairs, there's two mischievous guys who get a kind of a sack. And then once the guy is coming down the ladder, the guy gets you know, put into the sack. And that's very funny. That's the story. That could make for a great full-length film, actually. It would be the most fun Romeo and Juliet out there. Most likely would not be really that interesting, as you would see it. Hmm. Well, it had not been long since the history of the photographic process started. Uh, the first technique, called the Daguero type, was... Invented in 1839, there were several other techniques. Calotype in 1841, a little fine-tuned version, the collodion process in 1851, dry plates in 1871. And during the time of the Lumiere reign, there were also several other people around the world who were creating similar type of machines as the Lumieres had. So I would say it's a little bit fuzzy and not completely clear who might be the actual father of cinema. The Lumiere's contributions, of course, cannot be understated. Yeah, it's it's kind of the case where it's hard to say because how do you count the father of cinema? 
like like the first person who created the technique of capturing somehow moving image or or do you count the the first attempts or or, or the first time that you have the illusion of of movement in an image do you count the first time that there is a narrative in in cinema yeah uh, or, or 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 with that image when there's first time when there is a narrative told through those images Personally, I'm, I'm not interested in finding out who did the first commercial or non-commercial display of moving pictures. What I'm more interested about is probably the way of making the illusion of frames next to frames. But then, of course, well, you could argue that is this real cinema yet when we have speeds of six to seven frames per second, as those some of those earliest inventions might have given to you. But, you know, I, I think... That is the start somewhere around there. There was also somebody called uh, Kazimierz Prusinski, this uh, Polish inventor, who had the pleograph created before the Lumiere brothers were on it in 1894. The guy also created the device called Aeroscope, kind of a more developed compressed air camera after that. That was somewhat popular. Yeah, no, all of that is kind of also lost to the ages at this point. Yeah, but of course it matters who was there, I think, as the first, as we have to. Does it, does it really? Does it really? Because in the end, all, all, all that cinema eventually is, is just, you know, selling the illusion. And I, I don't know if we really ever need to have an answer to, you know, who created, who first created the concept of of a of a moving image or movement within an image. My only problem is that there were a lot of people who were kind of mischievous and trying to take the credit for themselves for this invention. Pretty much like probably the Lumiere's and pretty much like Thomas Edison. Yeah, yeah, and and something that doesn't help the fact is is that like mentioned, no one ever actually chose to create movies. Like it, it wasn't the driven goal of of anyone. Like like in the sense that there would be some kind of a moment in history, a moment zero when there was nothing, and then someone just gets the idea. I want to start to create movies. What what movies altogether is? It's just it's it's a technological evolution where basically maver- uh, inventors and and some kind of wild running mavericks have taken something that has been before them and tried to enhance it somehow and then movies were kind of a happy accident in result of of that evolution the, yeah. the human human race has always tried to tinker with with the image uh, with with the concept of of a movement within an image. But these days, some of the scientists believe that the, basically the first concepts of a, of a moving picture would perhaps come from the Upper Paleolithic era, like back back in the cave painting days, <laughs> when when the individual artists would use flickering torches and and the fire to cast shadows around uh, on the wall and around the paintings this way creating some type of a harsh illusion of a movement i mean the film like air quotes and marks that the film 
which te- technically doesn't even mean movies. Like the, the film, which already is, is pretty antiquated as a term, like most of the of the t- terms concerning cinema these days are. Like we talk about film, we talk about frames, we, we talk about all, all, all this stuff, but mostly in, in movie making today, we, we don't use film that often. We usually just use a shoot on, on digital, and we also don't anymore have frames. Frame, frame as a term originating from the from the you know individual picture that would be captured within the film reel, and mm-hmm. we, we don't even have those anymore because we don't have film. But but film air quotation marks it originally started simply as still images, which when viewed in rapid succession would create an illusion of movement. This is something that you kind of see, for example, in, in early Disney movies. Like they were the ones that were hand-drawn, and otherwise also, in, in especially in hand-drawn animation, in which they don't use computer algorithms to soothe over the, the change between image A and image B. Like, for, like mentioned, for example, in the, in the old Disney hand-drawn classic films, if your eye is is trained enough, you actually can see that the gaps be, be, between the images when a character makes the movement in in some cases. Of course. Typically, you don't, but that that's something which gives you the the kind of a harder concept of what film actually means that the whole kind of a that the main idea before behind films kind of stems from peter mark rochets uh in 1824 documented idea of persistence of vision which is a phenomenon that that states that human eye and human brain are kind of incapable of seeing black spaces between frames once again harkening back to the whole film concept Film reel itself is is after you shot it. It's a combination of individual images that you simply play in in rapid succession. And be, between each of those uh, those images, there there is a blank space. That's where where the the whole concept of frames stems from. Rocket realized that you are kind of a incapable of of seeing seeing that blank space. Which then would play with a much younger concept, the 1912 Max Warheimer's Five Phenomena, uh, which states that there is actually a, a gap, or that there's a fault in in how the human eye and prey coordination works. There's a very short, there's a fifth of a second gap, which your uh, brain still hold on to that image that has just blast past your eyes. Meaning that if if you would load up a next image that would be close enough to the previous one that you have just seen, your eye-brain coordination would trick your brain into thinking that there hasn't been a gap that they are still one continuous image and therefore they, you uh, your brain kind of a sells you uh, the idea that what you are seeing is a continuous movement so for, for example if if a if a film flashes before your eyes with with 24 frames per second let's say it to, to be thanks to five phenomena, thanks to your brain latching into that 
that previous image for that for that fifth of a second, your brain would still kind of construct that as one continuous image that is in movement. Once again, hearkening back to the that the whole animation point, because animation presents to you very clear example of this. There, there are always gaps between frame A and frame B on animation. It's, it, it's in, in, in a waving of the hand, when you draw it in the end, the, the, it's, it's never, there are, there is always a little bit of teleportation that happens when the, the hand waves through the air. And that's something that the five phenomena kind of uh, helps to soothe over and sell you the, the whole notion that that's the hand is, is really moving in a continuous way. And that's where essentially uh, the, the whole idea before, behind movies comes from. Yeah, when talking of uh, plain drawn animation, that of course is uh, kind of seen as a completely different technique as as opposed to something that you're capturing in real life, what your eyes see on day to day basis. But nevertheless, it's uh, using the same trick of the eye. It is, and and the whole projection eventually is it comes down to using that trick. Like the, the the wild rampant competition that happened between project and technologies during the Lumiere days, what, what, what the competition was mostly and most of about was uh, about the stop and go mechanism of, of the cameras, and therefore the kind of the selling off of that illusion and pulling off that illusion. Yeah, something kind of a snippet point to discuss here is also that when it comes to the sprinkle sprinkled this wasn't even the first time that the Lumiere's were showing something publicly there was also something that happened before the sprinkle sprinkled premiered there was a screening on 22nd March of 1895 for about 200 members of Society for the Development of the National Industry in Paris and most likely uh, this was the, the first presentation of films on a screen for a large audience. And this was followed by The Sprinkle Sprinkled, along with the other nine movies that were presented on 28th of December, 1895. But 1895, 1894, those years were quite busy for the birth of film or movies. Yeah, they were. But the busy years also never really stopped. Like that, that is some that is part of kind of the invention era of of the projection and film capturing technologies. But it it kind of is a question: How do you count what what are the busy decades of of filmmaking? Do you count it on on the mass? How much film was made? Do you count it on inventions that was ma- that were made? around filmmaking or do, what, what is the measuring stick here and what where, where you draw, draw a line what gets counted and what gets not do, does the Lumiere's films really count into the movies because what they essentially are they they are 
few seconds less than a minute long kind of a documentaristic snippets of everyday life everyday life right but what what i would say to that is that it's been a constant evolution in the world of films something that was 50 seconds back then wasn't even thought of as a short film we came up with the concept of short film after these all films were made during 1895 there were the first documented large crowd showings of, of films and the first narrative film fictional film as we know it so i would put the flag right there i don't know i'm much more hesitant myself to actually say what would count as a birthing place for for cinema but yeah of course if you if you go back to le prince he was already on making films kind of recording everyday life nevertheless around there history was made where would you put the flag then henrik to a trip to the moon? I kind of wouldn't put the flag on anywhere. I, I, I don't need the, the, fla- the flag any any specific time period to state that this is where, where the cinema was born. Well, I think we can put it somewhere roughly, since we have moving images here. <laughs> well, we have had more or less moving images. I don't know. I mean... Uh, fuck! If you if you want moving images, there, there there's a ball found in in Iran over five thousand years ago, which has a similar type of image painted. If you spin it fast enough, you once again you get that Im- illusion of a moving image. It's it's unclear, it's un- uncertain if if the creator of the ball really aimed to do and produce an animation. But that's still capable, uh, something that you can do with that pole. You can have mm. a moving image. I see your point, but I'm, what I'm looking for here is the kind of the, the birthmark, more or less, of the, of the camera that we know today. Some kind of a basic structure. And with, with, with the camera, you kind of have, have to then ask yourself, do you count the early days of cinematography? Because that's really where, where the Lumiere brothers camera in the end came from. They took, once again, they took a previous invention and they even took, knowingly or, or unknowingly, they were treading the same waters that, that so many people before had treaded, uh, treaded. And they just, you know, they took an old camera and they put a new type of mechanism inside of it to create something that is is more or less something that was already done in at least in some capacity before them well Henrik, i think we can conclude that you would put the flag in the adventures of the cavemen hunting for the deers not necessarily because that also necessarily isn't you know the the, the birthing place of of moving image you, you kind of can also ask, is the Iranian pole the, the birthing place? Is it, is it the, the phenakistoscopes of, of 1833s? Or is it your eyes? Because which, which essentially is just a spinning disc, but it also has, has a drawn image on it that resembles, where the next image resembles the previous one enough that 
when the disc spins, you get the, the, the notion of movement. Or, or would it be 1845 and the, the stereophoroscope? Would, would that be its, its much more, which is kind of a, the same idea as phenakistoscope, but now in, instead of a disc, it's operating more on, on slates and there's a hand crank system. Like, yeah, like you had with the Lumiere's camera, which was why they were able to, to squash the electric, electricity problem that, that Dixon and Edison were fighting with. Surely we can at least agree that this was a historic time in the history of moving consequent images. Well, we, we can we can argue that 1866 was a historic moment in... in the concept of a moving image, because that's when the toy manufacturer Milton Bradley introduced the definitive ver- version of Joeytrope, which is the most well-known kind of a moving image illusion that we have. That That's the, the cylinder that has the image, like, for example, man riding a horse being, uh, being drawn on the wall of the cylinder, and then you have the another cylinder, this which slits on it, and you would spin the cylinders and look through the slit, and you would have the illusion of of, of movie, moving image of an animation playing in front of your eyes. So once again, I've selected the completely wrong decade. In the next episode, it would be back to cylinders and scopes a la Henrik or to the cavemen's. But would it really? Because that's just the, the concept of, of of an animation to get there. Does it really count? Do, do we also need the, the real life kind of a version, like like not drawn aspect to the, the film to really count it? Yeah, that's I, what I, I am looking for. Yeah, well, do do we then go because because that the whole card card um, the the whole working idea be, behind what what you are looking for be behind film it plays with the persistence of vision and and the five phenomena and human race has more or less try tackled with 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 that with those two phenomena as as long as you can count but either on purpose or then by accident. I mean, you kind of even find the versions of this from even even from the early days of Camera Obscura, which would take you something like 1600s to 1650s, which was and even that's kind of a hazardous world because that's only when Camera Obscura itself became commercial. Like camera obscura as an uh, as a phenomena has existed with us from I, I would say from the goddamn day that God's green earth was created in in some form before it was something that we couldn't really control and necessarily understand at least to the fine capacity that it reached in the 1600s. When mm-hmm. people, people, when we finally figured out to combine camera obscura with, for example, usage of mirrors, this way finally turning the image to the correct uh, way. Camera obscura being the the event where you have a dark space 
and something that you can project something onto, like a floor or a wall. And with, with that dark space, you have some kind of a hole in it from where a light can, can shine through. The, the rays of light reflect from the surface, surface objects and goes through the hole and this way project the, the image to the surface, like the wall or, or, or the floor. Unfortunately, because light travels directly, that, that, that reflection or projection will by default be upside down. And depending on how big the holes are, it will be either a big projection and blurry, or it will be a smaller pro uh, projection, but much more sharper. So like with, with big holes, you get the big and blurry. And if you have a small hole, you get mm -hmm. a smaller and sharper projection. And in, in 1600s, that's when we finally managed to kind of, a, kind of, kind of a nail it down and introduce mirrors. But if you are chasing the, the, the kind of an event, the camera obscura itself, there, there is a scripture, Mosey, from, if I remember correctly, it's a, it's a Chinese text that dates 500 BC. And that text already is describing camera obscura as, uh, as a phenomenon. Or sure, you, sure. you know, if 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 that's not not good enough, if if you need need to to have the the capturing technology there, so so that you can say that that we are no longer just projecting, which is also something that is really importantly ties into the whole movies, because the movie has to be projected. But if you are talking about the capturing technology, then do we count in that the first days of camera because that would take us to I guess somewhere like 1820s when Joseph Niesfor Niepsch however you pronounce it goddamn I'm terrible with names but took the first camera photograph this being the view from the window at Lagrange where he combined camera obscura the phenomena we, with a perder plate that was heavy with light-sensitive chemicals, meaning that, well, he first he had to expose the, the, the plate for, like, days. This was a really time-taking process, but the chemicals on the plate would, when, when hit by the light, they would start to harden. So and so, so the places on the plate that had mo more of the chemicals, the, 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 the image would start to, to form through hardening, and the rest of the chemicals you could wash away. And this way you could actually have a really crude photograph, maybe quotation marks, depends on how you count it, to form on the plate. By, by a combination of the washed away chemicals and the chemicals that would stick. And then again, in, in 1839, the friend of, of Liebsche, Louis Daguerre, like you already mentioned, would shorten that exposure time to, mm. to mere minutes. And this would kind of, kind of be the, where, where the Photography kind of would, I would say, would really start to form because with, with Leapshade, it was way too time taking process. 
and now you can actually try to be like like an actual photographer because because the exposure time would be gotten so short but you would still be toying around with glass or metal plates and and chemicals that are way too toxic to you to really use so you would need George Eastman to come up with the Eastman Kodak and the whole concept of taking the pictures not on plates but on paper and with, with Eastman Kodak you finally can get to to Edward Maybridge and and the well-known galloping horse situation which I don't know does it does it count to to cinema or, or, or trying to track the birthing place of of cinema because the, the, what what happened with Maybridge was that he was he was uh, asked or he was hired by Leland Stan- Stanford to provide a photographic evidence that at some point when a horse is in full gallop, it reaches a point where none of, its, none of the horses who touch the ground. And Maybridge solved this by setting up 12 cameras alongside of a racetrack and, and rigging those cameras with tripwire contraptions. And situating the cameras next to each other, and having a horse with uh, on full gallop riding through there, setting off the trip wires, and this way setting off the cameras. And that's well. First of all, it it did prove that, or provided the photographic evidence that a, a galloping horse has moments where none of its hooves touch the ground. But it also led into motion studies. Because now, now we are talking about the possibility of having 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 the photograph and maybe being able to play it in in such of a way that you have once again the illusion of a con- continuous movement. But Maybridge himself wasn't interested at this at at least first. What where Maybridge wanted to go was with the motion studies. Which is pretty much the complete opposite. That that is taking a movement and breaking it down into individual images. Like for example, let's say you have a boxer that punches something. Uh, Maybridge was more interested in capturing that moment and then breaking it down into into frames and not really trying to sell you the the idea of boxer moving and throwing the punch. He's going the opposite direction. But that would kind of, uh, at least with motion studies, Maybridge would once again, uh, uh, at least in the end, he would be trying to work with uh, and come up with Supraxis scope, which once again was one projection tool that Maybridge in, uh, came up with the project the the images and with that you could perhaps have a proto film projection device combining the the two praxiscope and the photos but that's also kind of kind of a that does, does it count how how do you measure it you can quibble about this as long as you want <laughs> but yeah. the the truth of the matter is that yes the human race has wanted to record itself in many creative ways since the birth of the human race. Who knows, maybe even our ancestors were 
trying to do something similar. Who knows? I mean, you you already mentioned Dixon and Edison, who created who created the key. God damn these names, but the kinograph, which was kind of their first version of a film camera. Now, this, this is the the whole thing that had, had the problems that the Lumiere's then solved. But but yeah, create the kinograph. But kinograph itself was placed, uh, based on a previous photographic invention, the chronophotographic gun, which was, was again, that was... On, uh, on its part, it it was an evolution from Maybridge's invention. It was essentially it, it was a camera built around a ca- gun mechanism. It had a drum which would hold the film, and then it would have an exposure mechanism so that you would you would oper- rotate the drum and expose the shutter to to light, and this way you could actually capture more uh, pictures than with Maybridge's trip wires. The kind of uh, photographic gun was, if I remember correctly, was able to capture something like 12 pictures a second. So we are kind of lacking from the 24 frames per second. But, you know, there you go. And that's something that, that Dixon and Edison were tinkering with when they came with, with their own idea. And then again, Dixon also is kind of the birthing place of many things that we now tie in with with film. Like there, there was there was the problem with with Dixon was that it was hard to say how you can hold a piece of film long enough for it to to expose enough to to capture the image, and then on, on the other hand to move it rapidly enough for the next shot to be captured. Kind of fast enough that you would have shots side by side, close enough that you would could be able to produce the illusion of a movement. And and Dixon saw this with something like uh, called the sprocket holes. You you have the typical idea what what film re- what, what a piece of film looks like. And you you have the holes on the sides. That that was Dixon's idea. That was what was needed for for Dixon's whole mechanism, the, the sprocket gear gears to work. Like the, the original camera that Dixon came up with, it it, it was built upon uh, built upon on seven gears that were operating inside the camera. The first gear would be holding the supply reel or or the film start, and then you would have kind of a turned sprocket. That would lead the film from the real to the upwards uh, space, and from there you would actually have the film drop down. And be- between that uh, that up and down, you would then have the uh, the shutter and the aperture, the lens, and a pull down clank, which would grab the holes and pull the film down. This giving the chance for shutter to capture your light and then the aperture to, to block it so that you have that image capture and then the pull down clank would release the film, uh, the pull down clank would release and grab the holes of the next frame and repeat this process. And then you would have the drive sprocket 
hidden there that would kind of make the whole the the all the sprockets inside the camera turn and and make it possible that the film would run inside the camera and the, 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 even even this you you kind of run into the uh, in, into problems of when, when it comes to film when it comes to showing films do, do you can't simply the fact that you now have an exposure and capture technique did you kind of and you would have the film the, the actual hard physical film to use for the capture or, or do you also want the the projection technology to work with you there were numerous problems with dixon's invention the, the kinetograph was too big to move it it like mentioned it needed constantly electricity which was a huge factor back in those days because you didn't have batteries meaning that you couldn't take the goddamn thing with you it and it needed a lot of light like when when dixon and edison were making their films they had to to build their own film studio where, where to film anything because because of the light light thing and you not being able to move it then on the other end you would also have the projection problems because the only way to actually see the kinetograph films would be through kinetoscopes which were these hulking boxes where you would stand next to the box and look down and the film would be playing on on this small there would be this viewing apparatus and the film would be playing there. These are something that you actually see in Bioshock Infinite. They they are all over the town. Basically the same. same they basically are kinetoscopes. So if you want to experience, uh, see what kinetoscope is all about, you know, play play Bioshock Infinite. But that's that's also something like how much when it comes to the whole film. How, how much does the also the projection technology and and the capa- capabilities of, of projection actually weigh in in that discussion because with kinetoscopes only one person at any given time would be able to see the film and and, and since I already mentioned also uh, Oscar Mestor when we were talking about would the technology actually be be possible without the Lumieres. Mester himself was also tinkering with with the stop and go mechanism, which was the the big thing with the Lumiere brothers camera also. And Mester was using something like Maltese Cross or, or Geneva Drive, which would uh, the the name stemming from the the fact that the it's a kind of an operating gear in inside the system would be shaped. After the um, the Maltese cross medal, and the the, the first thing where that would have been used was in in Genevian clocks. So Mester essentially took a clock mechanism and applied that to a film camera stop and go mechanism, creating the, the, the same thing that that Lumiere's in the end created. Lumiere's went with a hand crank. Yeah. And that's that's how Lumiere's were able to solve the electricity problem that Dixon was was fighting with. Yeah, of course, quite unreliable still with the, when it comes to the exposure time and how many frames per second you will get. But 
those were the days. And those those were the days. And and see, since you mentioned the the unreliability of, of the hand crank, yeah, they were. I mean, that's where George Melies mm-hmm. breaks <laughs> in once again because the the whole kind of innovation that he had behind his films, that the way how he finally figured out how to make fictional narratives with movies. Like like we uh, talked about in in Trip to the Moon episode, that also was a result of an of an accident and yeah. and and the unreliability of of the hand crank. Melies's camera's hand crank jammed, and during the time that it took Melies to to fix the crank and get the get the camera rolling once again, the the image that he was trying to capture had changed. And now he had what today is is known as editing, and that's where Melies finally got the idea that hey, I can do play all these tricks by manually operating the camera and manually operating the film. Well done, well done. The sprinkle, sprinkled favorite performance doesn't really have necessarily <laughs> have any performance e- even. Yeah, uh, this is a tough one that I. Guess I'll just go with the youthful energy, even though kind of messes it up near the end. I'll go with the with the boy. Oh, okay. Uh, my favorite shot and scene would be kind of the same that you see, and no favorite piece of music or lines or kill for that matter. I guess Henrik. No, no. I I, I was coming from zombie strippers. I was kind of really expecting. How you pick your strong lead character and and your best line in this absolutely <laughs> quotable movie that zombie stripper somehow wasn't? I thought I could hear with my third ear something like "God damn it" from the gardener there. But uh, yeah, what drew you out? Um, nothing much. Like nothing really drew me in either. I I always watch Sprinkle Sprinkled and. Other Lumiere productions with uh, some type of, I guess, academic apathy. Still, I could think that when this was first shown in 1895, it must have been quite an an exhilarating thing. I I don't know if you've heard of any audience reactions regarding this piece, but... uh... No, but when when it comes to audience reactions, it's, it's hard to say how how big they may have been. Like when it comes to Lumiere's and audience reactions, everybody has heard heard the story that when, when they train. played the train coming to the station, the, the audience started to scream in terror because the illusion was so real that they, the audiences were certain that the train is going to drive over them. And looking back to that, that claim, I would actually call horror shit on that mm. because through camera obscura through other visual image manipulation and trickery i i would almost say that the parisian audiences were already quite familiar with the concept of a of a moving image and and also the the fact that because move, image movement in in one form or the other was already done quite heavily before. 
and if and, and through the through camera obscura and the early days of of photography also capturing something from the real life was also done already and projecting something was already done i kind of fail to see how 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 the illusion would be so alien to parisian film going audiences that they couldn't be able to to differentiate between what they are seeing and the reality that they were existing so when it comes to the whole the audiences were screaming in terror claim i would almost make the case that if they were screaming for something they would have been screaming out of excitement finally being able to see that that moving image manipulation in in such of a big image size and with just, just uh, with, with such of a clarity because that's also yeah. something where, where the technology had had advanced and also what the lumiers were able to, to to kind of fix and build up on was how big of an image you can project and how clear of an image you can project so i i would say that screams were being more of a like wow how great this is than than oh my god it's coming for us and so if if that imi- uh, audience reaction is kind of a so painted over by this fictional narrative it kind of makes it hard to to even try to guess what the audience reactions would have been for 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 example a sprinkle sprinkled because we, yeah. we are now dealing with with something that most likely did happen the audience excitement and this this kind of a narrative that we have all been spoon-fed the, yeah, the audience is screaming in terror when it comes to this uh, screaming in terror and the like the reactions that uh, might have been talked about most likely used for for advertisement purposes there is also the cinematograph lumiere poster which has the la rosa arrows or the garden at the sprinkle sprinkled in the in the background and hand drawn members of the audience looking at it and uh, apparently having a wonderful time there kind of praising it applauding at it yeah and, well it's anyone's guess what really happened in the theater during that time it is it is and now that you mentioned lumieres and and marketing it's it, 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 that that also kind of a like plays together with with lumieres themselves because when it comes to lumieres legacy as as the fathers of of a movies or cinema or film or whatever that also is something that most likely stems from the marketing strategies that that lumiers played with when when they were in business like like you mentioned it's it's unclear exactly who made the the, the first kind of a public screening of a movie mm. because uh, Yeah, there, there there is the March 2020 20, 20, 1895 Lumiere presentation at Society for the Development of the Natural Industry as you stated and that that did have a lot like you said that he did have the large crowd it did have the audience of 200 but nobody was actually charging for admittance 
to, to that scaling. Yeah. As, as far as I've understood from Lumiere's, that was something of a perhaps hand-picked crowd by Lumiere's, or at least half hand-picked crowd from Lumiere's, by, by simply by the, the virtue of, of Lumiere's presenting the film in, in, in a societal hall. In, in a certain type of place, Society for the Development of the Natural Industry, that that kind of already cuts out, uh, or I would hazard to guess that that would have already cut out like most of the common folk. You you would have um, I, I don't know people from industry, people from from the well, well the said society itself. You would kind of had the even if you wouldn't be handpicking the the audience members, you would. By choosing the, the location as they did, you would kind of have an ability to control who gets to see your picture. So it might, may not have been completely open presentation of film. And Lumiere's did do the, this, this, this kind of a high presentations before they, they made their they, they December big public presentation in the Salon Indie du Grande Café. And, and those presentations Lumiere made for, for more or less selected groups to build up hype. And then you would have have a May 20th, 1895, when, when Woodville La, La, Latham was presenting a short capture from a boxing match in a lower Broadway store. And Latham, on the other hand, he would have had a paying audiences. So if you go with with who first took money from from showing a movie, in that case, Latham would have actually beaten Lumiere's because he charged. If if you go with with, with crowds, then it would be Lumiere's because audience of two hundred. And then if, if you go with who had the first open screening, like open to anyone, then, it, then it's kind of a, everyone's guess, guess because it comes down to how much do you count that the Lumieres were able to present control over who gets to see the film when they presented it in the Society for Development of, of the National Interest Industry. If you don't count that as an as an open screening, then in that case, even even Max Skladanovsky would beat Lumiere's because he was uh, also presented his film in Berlin in first of November in eighteen ninety five to paying audiences. There you go, a lot of competition. A lot of competition and and really hard to kind of draw the line. Like, what do you count here? earth of Sacrilege, what would you change in the film? How would you improve the film? I think I'll just leave it as it is. Yeah. Three adjectives to describe the film. Quick. First. Entertaining. Mine are uh, short, historical... And silent. Watch test. Did you look at your watch during the film? No, no time to look at my watch. No, I didn't have a time. I blinked and I missed the entire presentation. Yeah. Look at your watch. You missed this film. You already know you're watching Sprinkle Sprinkled When. When when you get wet all of a sudden. 
You really know you're watching The Sprinkle Sprinkled when you're done before you get to the end of this sentence. Would you recommend The Sprinkle Sprinkled? Well, do you do you like history tracks? Do, do you like book and discovery? Because this actually ties in with with our previous episode, which also is a is a historical film I'm talking about, The Birth oh, of a God. Nation. Oh, that not, not the not the zombie strippers. That's good. Because my actually recommendation is the same one that I at least tried to give in in the birth of a nation. I would recommend this to once again to sad and pathetic film podcasters. You <laughs> kind of have an in in that case you kind of have an obligation to check out this film. Who, who knows if if you cram enough history about something into it you can even squeeze an entire episode of about uh, from this film for your podcast so you know if 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 you are film podcaster and you don't have a social life and you don't know what is this thing called sex that everybody's talking about in, in that case i guess you don't have any better time than to check out sprinkle sprinkle well in that context i think we have succeeded very well tonight Would I recommend the film? Yes, I would, but it's not gonna take much of your time. So, what can I say? You don't even really have to be a film buff to look this this through. I almost say that that you would have to be a film buff, or 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 a film academian, or a sad and pathetic film podcaster. Check out this film because I'm kind of hard pressed to see what else is there to see in this except you know that a historical record and that um thank you at least it's a historical record it is it is but why would that actually be of interest to uh, to an average film consumer like what what would anyone anymore get out of this film except the, the historical record and that's a, a kind of a, an academical merit So if if and if that's what you are going with, then you have to kind of ask why would anyone check out a film simply for the academical merit? And the only yeah. persons that I I can come up with who would actually see that trouble are the film academians and film buffs and sad and pathetic film podcasters who watch this more or less out of obligation. You're right in the in the way that most likely the the casual film watcher would never even find this film. But I think it's great to give more awareness to this flick. And once any casual fil- film watcher would come across this film, I think I think they would be happy to check it out. Not out of the cur- curiosity of the history per se, but because it's such of an old film. It's a kind of a societal fascination by itself. By the virtue of being But, really old. Well, be being an old kinda isn't a given merit outright. Like I don't really feel that this has a, a societal excitement outside of certain circles. Like, uh, and when when it comes to historical film, I'm actually more and and casual viewers. And, and a viewing experience. I'm more aching to to George Méliès and and the trip to the moon because that's also is a historical piece of cinema and that comes with wacky sci-fi adventure stories where 
scientist goes to the moon and adventure happens and happy endings and all, all of that stuff. So I, I would say that when it comes to to film or historical film, Melies or 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 Chaplin or something like that would be more for a casual viewer and mm-hmm. yeah. and Lumiere's would once again be for, for for those who are going to check the film out because of the historical record and and the academical merit that that record has so like they, they are going to check this film out to see the really old film and one of the first films yeah but, when it comes to my personal preferences i'm not of course being the kind of the casual watcher but in my case i kind of prefer to see some of the 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 pieces that have been listed as kind of the first whereas Melia's a trip to a, a trip to the moon is not really that much first except for kind of tying all the different uh, techniques as we have discussed in that episode in a nice little package that works it has kind of the history on its side in that point in that way but it's hardly any kind of first anywhere but uh, so yeah for me i would turn rather and my interest levels are a bit higher when watching the sprinkle sprinkled it might be the the fact that it's really old and you still haven't you know developed a lot of these techniques well not not necessarily cinematography wise now again you can also ask how much technique there is in in cinematography in the end when it comes to like already lectured up to a nauseam that the technical side on the other hand it's it's kind of a like if if you want to put the technical flag on 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 lumiere by by all means just just do it i i myself i'm too kind of a fixed up with the the, the overall i i enjoy too much about the history of how film capturing and film presentation have evolved throughout the years to even one up wanting to put a flag on any given time. But there is, when it comes to film, there is a lot of discussion to be had on on the definition of first and what counts as as a first. Well, this might be the first ever film podcast episode which talk about a 50-second film for two hours or so. <laughs> All right. Um, well, those were the quickest for this one as we're dealing with kind of limited material. Yeah, the quickest took long, longer than the actual film. But Henrik, what is our next film? We don't have one because it's <gasps> it's once, once again self-masturbatory celebration episode. <laughs> well, there has to be one at least once a year, hasn't there? We were talking about this in the 50th episode that we will never do it again. So let's not do it again. Let's do it differently now. Let's at least try. Yeah, let, let's just cover some film <laughs> and then not celebrate. Well, Henrik, I think I can already kind of ask it in this episode. I have a suggestion for you. Uh, since you and I are both in Helsinki and for some reason we're in different locations still recording remotely, we could fix that for the 100th episode. I mean, I'm going to be busy as all in the coming days, but since this would be kind of an important point to 
finally be face to face at least in one episode. I think the hundred would be it. Do you have time on the coming days to make this happen? Mm, really hard to say. Let's see. Let's see. It would be fun to actually finally do uh, a recording where we are both in the same location. Yeah, my God. So once again, we have known each other now for what sixteen years and counting, and we have met three times. Something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. Doesn't quite make sense. Four, actually, because there, there was that one video game expo. There was the video game expo. I went to Orivesi. Yeah, and th- then there was one Kauhuyan Uyo. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You were there. Was there nothing else around those years? Yeah, exactly once. It, I, I guess it was the last time that you to, you hosted the event. But... Yeah, so, okay. So four times for sure. This last one being about one and a half years ago, or what was it now? Uh, something like that. We tried to make an episode, but nothing came of it. Time flies. Thank you for joining us for this irregular beast. We like to do this in the last episodes before 100, it seems. We're completely out of control lately. And apologies already. In the meantime and in the between time, you can find us on, once again, social media. See you next week for the 100th celebratory, celebratory masturbatory episode. Oh, and the Until then. Mutta en ole seksuaalisesti aidistelemassa sua. Se on varma. Joo, joo, ei mitään. En mä sitä sillä lailla tulkinnutkaan. Ei, ei mitään. Ei mitään. Tämä vaikuttaa suoraan sanottuna vähän siitä, että sä kaipaat lisää kontenttia tähän jaksoon. Onko sä jotain, mistä sä puhua?